0: Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. This is episode 13. We are on the second part of a three-part series talking about the Eucharist. Uh, Last time we were on the Old Testament. Today we have moved up to the New Testament and the final episode, which should be coming out this Friday, will be covering a broad range of things. Everything from frequently asked questions, which is my favorite part of this article. Um, We also have a little bit of the philosophy behind transubstantiation. We reference some early church fathers, and we even talk about a few Jewish traditions. So that one is action-packed, but this one is too. We'll be chiefly reading from John 6, though we also deal with some arguments that we draw out of 1 Corinthians. Without further ado, let's begin. If there is any one passage that ought to convince any Christian the Eucharist is in fact the body of Christ, it is this passage, John 6. There are a significant percentage of Protestant Christians who believe in a literal six-day creation 6,000 years ago. Why? Well, because the scriptures tell them so. While I disagree with the interpretive paradigm leading to this conclusion brought to what I consider an allegorical text, I definitely admire the resolve it takes to privilege the words of scripture over and above any other evidence. But certainly John 6 is far clearer than Genesis, so why don't the same Christians that hold fast to other passages as literal hold also to this one as literal? Listen to the words of Jesus in John six thirty one through 69, and I'll be adding a bit of commentary along the way. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. His audience was expecting the Messiah to bring back the manna. Jesus makes clear that he is the manna because he is the bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everything that the Father gives me will come to me, and anyone who comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who has sent me, that I will lose nothing of that which he has given me, but I will raise it up in the last day. This is indeed the will of my Father, that all who see the Son and believe in him will have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Now, Jesus tells us we are supposed to be believing in him, but what are we supposed to believe such that we get this eternal life? We'll find out in verses 47 through 48. Before that, let's read how the Jews reacted to these words. Verse 41 Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not complain among themselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who has sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. We're not the first ones to have questions and doubts about his teaching. Jesus backs up his message in the strongest possible way. They will be taught by God. There is no higher authority than this. To accept his message, we must first be drawn by the Father and learn from the Father's message. Moving on to verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So what are we to believe in order to have life? Well, here is the answer. Quote, I am the bread of life. If we accept this teaching, then we can come to the table and be given eternal life. Quote, whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Verse 52, the Jews then disputing among themselves said, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? No one disputes his teaching is hard to accept. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we accept it. It is important to note that the Jews listening were not at all considering this language to be symbolic. In fact, just look at their objections. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This makes it very clear that the Eucharist is not optional. It is necessary part of salvation. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Read that all again, or listen to that all again, and tell me with a straight face that Jesus doesn't really mean that his flesh and blood will become food for us. Can you think of a possible sentence that he could have spoken that would have been more clear? Again, he says... For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And let me just um, pause here reading the article and kind of uh, rehearse an argument that that may have been missed. Maybe it's not quite clear enough. Um, So as we're reading through this, we talk a little bit about the objections that they have. One is, how did you really come down from heaven? The next is, how could you be the... um, the one giving the flesh to eat if, you know, we, 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 like, how could we eat you? Like, this doesn't make sense. So again, both of these are regarding um, whether or not Jesus's words are literal. Um, so if we look at these two objections and we pair them together, we see that both are indeed literal. So yes, it's hard to understand that Jesus actually came down from heaven And we understand why that's hard, because everybody we know was born into a human family in a normal human way. But Jesus was not. We understand Protestants, Catholics, all alike, that Jesus literally descended from the Father. He literally came from heaven. Now, is it true he had a family? Yeah. Is it true that he had a mother and father? Well, yes, a foster father. Um, But this was an act of the Holy Spirit that allowed him to become present with us in the incarnation. So both of the objections are ones which look at whether or not um, Jesus's claims are literal. Um, and I I would contend that uh, both of them are. And uh, yeah, I, I just see that's not as much of an argument as note how those two are paired. The Jews are objecting against all these things on. Um, it seems strange in the normal course of things. How could this be? Really true, and we understand these things are really true, or at very least um, uh, I think our Protestant brothers and sisters would agree that he literally came down from heaven, um, so we don 't want to be in the position of the Jews here, uh, not at all. They seem to have a poor interpretive paradigm for this um, i 've done a terrible job explaining this, um, but in any case we 'll we'll just leave it at um, we 'll just leave it at the Jews see Jesus as presenting something as literal, and they are rejecting it. Now they understand that Jesus is trying to communicate this as a literal reality. I actually came down from heaven and I will actually give you my flesh. Um, However, they reject this because it's out of the normal um, course of of operations. But um, I, I, I think that that shows that their interpretive paradigm of Christ's words is faulty. And if you're a Protestant, I would not suggest adopting that interpretive paradigm, and you are if you reject the literal words of Christ about his flesh, and you're being very inconsistent in the way that you interpret this passage. If you take the first claim, I came down from heaven, as literally true, and then you take the second claim, I will give you my my flesh and blood for your true food as just symbolic or something. So that's a big inconsistency in the way that you're interpreting it, and you're you're matching the way that the Jews rejected Christ. The other argument that I wanted to emphasize uh, from this area was it begins with Jesus saying, you have to believe in me. Well, great, but we can't just have a contentless belief. So what's the thing that we need to believe? Well, Jesus is leading up to you know preaching something pretty radical that he's going to give his flesh and blood for our food and drink. So that's what he goes and fills up that content with. He says, "You guys, you you're going to have to believe me on something, right? We don't go, "Okay, we believe in you Jesus and just go along." No. <laughs> the right question would be, "Uh, okay, you're saying I got to believe you. What do you want me to believe?" And the rest of the John 6 dialogue is the answer to that all right, you're going to have to believe that I'm come down from heaven. You're going to have to believe that I'm going to give you my real flesh for food. And uh, as I, I kind of noted briefly, he backs this up by saying, you know, Scripture says they will be taught by God. So this is God directly teaching us these things. So we ought to pay attention. Okay, moving on to verse 56. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. And he said these things while he was teaching at the synagogue of Capernaum. So here's the rationale behind the Eucharist. Jesus is one with God, and Jesus becomes joined to human nature through the hypostatic union with his physical body. When we get connected back to God by consuming Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity, we are thereby connected in one spirit with the Father. All right, and we will elaborate on that a little bit more. And I promised in the last episode a um, an argument that's not included in this article that I think is very powerful and Protestant-friendly. So I'll be uh, talking about that at the very end, and it is drawn from that part that we just read. All right, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult, and who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, Said to them, Does this offend you? Um, yeah, this is offensive to hear. It is hard to accept. We need to we need to understand that if people reject the Eucharist, well, it's been rejected before. We affirm that, yeah, it's offensive. It's weird, it's difficult, it's hard to hear. Um, we see this as the reaction of Scripture itself. Moving on to verse 62. Jesus' response is Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The fact is, although this is strange and revolutionary, it is nothing compared to the radical transcendent otherness of the Blessed Trinity. God gives us these common elements for our sake. We can't handle God in his infinite form. Verse 63. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, this is a point where a lot of Protestants jump in to uh, imagine this whole passage is a huge just kidding. However, if Jesus meant that he would die and his corpse was to be eaten, then how would this help anyone? That is what what flesh is without a spirit. It's called a corpse. But we already have dead flesh inherited from Adam. This dead flesh profits us nothing. What is needed for eternal life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ a resurrected body that is alive with the Spirit of God. When we are joined with this body, we are joined with Christ's Spirit, and our bodies will receive resurrection into eternal life like his did. Oh, I go on. Some Protestant theologians attempt to twist this verse into a giant just kidding. I see that I had the same thought as when I wrote this. Undoing the countless affirmations of Christ's body and blood being actual food for us, one common method is to imagine that spirit means symbol. But this is ludicrous. If that were true, then two chapters earlier, when John wrote that God is spirit, he'd be saying that God is a symbol. But that not only undoes Christianity, but it undoes theism. It's an objection that proves a little bit too much. A spirit is what gives life to a body. The prohibition against eating blood in the Old Testament explained that life is in the blood. Humans aren't to mingle our lives with animal lives because that would debase us. But if we drink the blood of Jesus, the God-man, then the opposite happens. For this life is given to us in order to carry us higher and give us union with our Creator. Verse 64. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first that there were some that did not believe, and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Do you also wish to go away? These words are for you, reader or listener. Jesus is asking, What kind of disciple are you? Will you be one that turns back after hearing this hard teaching? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. And this is our bottom line. If Christ is truly present to us in the Eucharist, where else would we possibly go? Moving on to the Last Supper. The Last Supper is repeated in all four Gospels. Actually, maybe not John. I, can, I think that has John 6 in place. Anyways, and 1 Corinthians. Clearly, the apostles thought this was a major event. This is from Matthew 26, 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? Note two things here. First, Christ is giving us new bread for the perpetual feast of unleavened bread. Second, we once again see that the Passover, while being a sacrifice, is also a meal. To participate in the Passover means to have a meal by way of a sacrifice. Christ, of course, is our new Passover lamb, and to participate in his Passover means to be invited to a meal. Verse 18, he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. Today, our teacher speaks through his apostles and tells us that he wants to celebrate his Passover in our house. That is, in us. Each Mass, we echo the words of the righteous centurion in Luke 7, 6, when we say together, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Continuing with Matthew's account of the Last Supper, verse 20, and and on. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they became greatly distressed, and began to say one to another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to him to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that one to have not been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. At a Passover, it was evening when the life of the lamb was given up in order to feed God's people. Here we see Jesus taking his place among the disciples as the one who is given up for them in the new Passover. The Jews had to take the lamb into their home and care for it prior to the Passover. It must have felt like a terrible betrayal to then kill this lamb that you have lived with And when evening fell. Jesus announces his betrayal at the same time as the lamb's, quote, betrayal, verse 26. This is of Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after saying thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never drink of this fruit again until the day that I drink it anew in the Father's kingdom. Let's zoom in on the cup he blesses and give and gives. Drink from it, all of you. This reminds me of the passage earlier in Matthew. This is chapter 20, 20 through 23. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor. And he said to her, What do you want? She said, Declare that two of my sons will sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They say to him, We are able. He said to them, You will indeed drink my cup. We get the picture of youthful optimism. They said to him, We are able. I imagine them with their chest puffed out in confidence The cup he is referring to is his rejection, torture, crucifixion, and death. You can imagine Jesus admiring the readiness and excitement while excusing the naivety. When he asks, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? It is a rhetorical question. No, of course they can't. This would be like a kid watching their father head off to war and wanting to go with him and help fight. Jesus, maybe with a knowing chuckle, responds, you will indeed drink my cup. In a way, it seems like he reverses himself. He is staring with an eyebrow raised in a rhetorical question, and yet he ends with this affirmation. It's only a few chapters later in Matthew that we understand. The disciples participate in the cup that Jesus drinks at the Last Supper. Drink from it, all of you. This means that Jesus is giving himself to them in a way that Christ can recapitulate his life, death, and resurrection in them. Now they can't carry the cross nor can they drink the cup of Christ's passion by themselves. That is only possible if the incarnate Christ lives in them, and this is what Christ gives them. This is my, the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, Matthew twenty six, twenty eight. He doesn't say it is like the blood of the covenant, or this is a symbol of the blood of the covenant. No, he holds up the cup of wine and declares with the same voice that said, Let there be light and there was light, that what he was holding is what makes the new covenant and truly forgives sins. And note, it's not just the apostles that participate in this. We cannot follow Christ all the way to the cross. We could not have done the crucifixion. We are absolutely not strong enough to drink of the cup that Christ drank of, the same one that in Gethsemane he says, let this cup pass from me. We can't do that. And yet, Jesus allows a way for us to participate in his work. It's precisely through the Eucharist. That's how we get to to ascend with Christ. It's by participating in the body of Christ, the same body that went through that and then was raised from the dead. All right, moving on to 1 Corinthians. We'll be reading from chapter 11 and just verses 27 through 30 for now. Let's see, um, let's see if our theological instincts match what these scriptures actually tell us. Now, try to fill in this blank. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for... And there's a blank. What would you fill that blank with? If, contrary to all of the history of Christian worship, scripture actually means the Lord's Supper is symbolic we would expect to see this verse with something like this. The desecration of the sacred symbol of Christ, or how about witnessing falsely to the unity of Christ, or maybe sinning against thy neighbor. If, however, this is actually the body and blood of Christ that we're talking about in the Eucharist, we would expect the line that actually comes next will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Look at that. Bread equates to the body, And the cup equates to the blood in this sentence, precisely what a historically Christian understanding of the Eucharist would have predicted and precisely what a new and man-made symbolic interpretation um, would have led us to um, not believe. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat Of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many are weak and ill, and some have died. Earlier in this passage, Paul condemns the abuses surrounding the Lord's Supper. Wealthy people were feasting on bread and getting drunk on copious amounts of wine, whereas the poor went without. Protestant theologians therefore read this condemnation as applying to those who don't discern the good of the body of Christ, meaning their brothers and sisters in the faith. There's no doubt that this situation could have been the context. However, Paul uses this instance of sin as a call to examine the states of their hearts prior to coming to the table. Quote, Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The issue was that people's hearts were wrong when coming to the table. The question then becomes, why is it such a deal that, quote, many of you are weak and ill and some have died? Why would would such a condemnation that could kill people be in place? Well, let's read it one more time, this time emphasizing some other parts of the passage. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all of you who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Note, the the judgments of sickness and death are due to eating the bread from line one. That has been explained to be the body of the Lord in line two. The rationale is that those who ate this bread that was explained to be Christ's body did not discern the body of Christ. That should seem pretty straightforward, but let me just read it again. Remember, we talked about whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. So Paul is equating the bread to the body. So when he uses it in the very next section, talking about not discerning the body, then that's what we're talking about, the body of Christ in the bread. That makes sense of why people are getting weak, ill, and dying. And of course, we uh, just to reiterate the argument that we began with, um, it's a little bit tougher when you're listening to it than reading it. So I'll just read it one more time now that we have all that context. Uh, how would a Protestant and how would a Catholic fill in this last blank? Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be un, will be answerable for a catholic will say uh, you would be answerable for the body and blood of the lord right because that's what the uh, the bread and the the drink are and that's exactly what scripture ends with will be answerable for the body and blood of the lord but if we took a symbolic interpretation, we would have thought something completely different would come at the end of that verse. So, th- that's in a way a a scientific test we could apply to the text, a a way of just um, seeing if our hypothesis was true and testing it against something that we know is true. Um, now, we have uh, coming up next week, I think I detailed a few things that we'll be be covering. That episode will likely be longer than this episode, Um, but I did want to deal with that promised argument um, that I referenced. Let me uh, go back to that section. You'll find it in John 6. It's towards the end of the Bread of Life discourse. Now, a lot of our uh, uh, Protestant friends don't really like typology. They would rather see an argument right from the text, and this came out of a discussion I was having with a um, Protestant, I I think he teaches philosophy at a college over in California. And you can find most of that conversation, um, in fact, I think all of that conversation, in the comments below the article. And the article, of course, is found at thegordianknot.org. And the title is The Eucharist, A Scriptural Tour. Okay. So, the section we'll be reading from is... Without further ado, see, I'm stalling now, guys. Okay, here we go. So we're at verse 56. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. Okay, so I propose that you either have to accept the Eucharist, and if you do that, then you're, you can also accept the Trinity and the Incarnation. But if you deny that the Eucharist is literally the substance of Jesus, substance, in this case, of this person, means the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, if you reject that, then that line that I just read means that you have to reject the Incarnation and the Trinity. Why? Why? Well, you can read in in any translation you like, but mine says, um, uh, just as the living Father sent me, right? Just as. So that just as part means that we're comparing two things, and they are the same. So what two things are we comparing? Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, right? That's thing one so whoever eats me will live because of me. All right, so now we need to compare why does Jesus live? Well, we know from the creed that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father. That is a core tenet of what we believe, that Jesus is God. He is of one substance with God. Okay, so let's try to kind of insert that. Just as the living Father sent me, and I, Jesus, live because I am of one substance with the Father, so whoever eats of me will live because of me. So what is our reason for living when we are eating of Christ? Come on, guys, you got this. It's the same as Christ living in his relation to the Father. And that is, it's a participation. It's being adjoined into the very substance of that person. In Christ's case, he is partaking of, he is part of the substance of the Father. They are consubstantial. So in order for this statement of Jesus to be true, that means that our eating of Christ must make us of one substance with Jesus. Why? Because it says, "Just as check any translation you like. Dig into the, uh, the, uh, the Greek of this. Go bananas. You will find that this necessitates that we affirm the same unity, and that unity is substantial unity. Now, Jesus is God and man. That's who he is." So you can't say that we're just joined with a corpse, right? Because that lacks the soul. That's not a human substance. That's that's a corpse. So we know that it must have the soul. We know that it must have the body in order to be the person of Jesus. We know the person of Jesus was fully united with the second person of the Trinity, such that they are one. And this is why I propose that dilemma. Because if you say that the just as means that, well, we just spiritually are connected with Jesus in this spiritual act of eating this um, this bread and drinking this wine, then you have to say the same thing about the way that Jesus is united with God. Oh, it's just, uh, you know, spiritually, right? Not of one substance. So if you take that, then you're you're denying the incarnation. You're denying the true union of Christ as God and man, and you're trying to dilute that out. Um, and if you do that and you affirm anything other than a consubstantial union with uh, with the Father between him and Jesus Christ, then you've destroyed the Trinity. So if you, if you reject that Jesus is truly God and man, you're rejecting the incarnation. And if you reject the consubstantial union, with Christ and the Father, then you reject the Trinity. And you have to do that if you apply the same standard to both sides of that question. And did you have to because Scripture says just as. Okay, so that's my argument there. The Catholic interpretation preserves all of those tenets of the Christian faith that the Eucharist is actually Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, that the Trinity consists of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit all consubstantial, and that Christ really and truly became incarnate, such that there is no mixing, mingling, and confusion. And that passage um, works perfectly with our theology, and as soon as you do anything less than a uh, Catholic Orthodox understanding of a real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, um, then that passage forces you um, Pretty well out of uh, Christian orthodoxy. That makes you reject one of those core tenets, which all Protestants accept, well, most all Protestants. Okay, so that is the argument there. I hope you enjoyed that. And the rest of the passages. Um, again, this one's a little bit shorter than the Old Testament, but um, but uh, I think that's great because we packed a lot in there. I would suggest if you want to dig into this a little bit further, you read through John six yourself. I broke it up with a lot of commentary, but I think you really get the most punch um, without me participating at all. <laughs> Instead, just read that dialogue in light of what we've talked about. Um, and I think you're going to find that Jesus was, uh, was declaring um, pretty emphatically that he was giving his flesh as food. Um, some have noticed that the amount of times he repeats this, amounts to what was in his society a high or, or like solemn oath. If you guys are familiar with that particular argument and you can source that, please send it to me. I'd love to include that line of reasoning in the article. I couldn't just because I couldn't track down um, where that idea was coming from. I had just kind of heard it floating around in the ether. All right. Well, I think we should move on to some questions and I think we have some good ones. So let's open the mailbag. First question. Should you tell your kids that Santa Claus is real? No, but you should tell them that elves are real. All right, next question. How do you take your coffee? Well, I um I fill the entire glass with uh with whipped cream. Yes, a glass, not a mug, I know. And um I pour coffee in it and then I cover it with sprinkles. I I I just find that's best. Okay, let's next question. I'm a high schooler, and I don't know what to study in college, and I don't know what I want for a job. How does somebody figure this out, and what should I do out of high school? Uh, Join the Marines. Okay, that's actually not a terrible piece of advice. It's the first one that popped to mind. The other one I typically give is that uh, all society has everything backwards. They tell you, come out of high school, see what college you happen to um, qualify for, then go to that college, and then once you're there, see what kind of classes they offer, what kind of majors they offer, and then pick a major. And then once you have a major, see what job that major qualifies you for, and then see where that job is, and then move to that place. I think that is terrible advice, and instead, you should work backwards. You should ask, where do I want to live? What type of people do I want to build my life with? And if you don't know that, well, travel around and uh, go to different places. Maybe you want to live in Hawaii. Maybe you want to live in Alaska. Maybe you want to live in California. Don't do that, but maybe you do. Um, So travel around. Maybe you have good friends who all live in one area and you would love to be part of that community. Cool. Um, Once you've found that answer, then work backwards. Go on Indeed or Monster.com and find out what jobs are in demand. Which ones could you actually get in that area? Next step. Find out what the qualifications you would need in order to get that job. And then find out where you can get those qualifications. And now you can begin. Go get those qualifications. Then you can get the job. Then once you have the job, you can be in the area you like. And I think that's a lot more fundamental of a question um, than, I don't know, what college will accept me. So start with the, start with the end and work backwards. Oh, we'll take this as a last question. Is there anything wrong or weird about commissioning a portrait of yourself? Um No if you're on a horse. I think you can get away with a lot, portrait wise, if you're on a horse. Um actually riding anything. I, I think it's okay if you're riding something. I think it's weird if it's just like you with your, like, shoulders faced one way and you turn your head slightly and you have, like, that kind of portrait look. Yeah, that's weird, but no. Um, Riding horse, velociraptor, really anything should be fine. So go ahead and get that commissioned. All right, well, I hope you join me for the next episode. Um, The next episode is by far my favorite because it has some some, uh, slightly snarky Q&A. And I think that actually is probably the most helpful part of the article because when you can lay this out all day long, you can read scripture to somebody all day long, but they're going to come back at you with some objections. And I want you guys to be able to handle those. And of course, if there's some objections that um, that I don't cover, uh, send them in and I will cover them. All right, and as always, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. That is, if you have friends and if you like sharing. And if you didn't like this episode, share it with your enemies. And thanks for listening.